Welcome to The Positioning Show, where we discuss topics related to the practical application of positioning for marketing, sales, and product teams. I'm April Dunford, a consultant, author, and the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B technology companies. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Positioning Show with me, April Dunford. How are you doing? How's everybody? I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good. Last week, I launched a new book. And that's pretty exciting. You know, books are a pain in the neck. <laughs> if you know anybody that's launched a book, they'll tell you that. It takes a certain amount of time to write one, but it takes a very long time to actually launch a book out in the market. Anyway, I just launched my book and so far the response has been amazing. And so I'm feeling really good about that. I mean, you never know when you write something like this, whether or not it's going to resonate with people. And so, so far so good. I'm on a bit of a book tour right now. So you might see me in your local city if you're out and about at conferences. So anyways, that's not what I want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about a very specific positioning topic and something that I get asked about a lot, which is how do we manage a big shift in our positioning? So let's dive into that. First of all, in technology companies, it's very normal for our positioning to change. It's one of the things that I think surprises people that are new to this work. Most folks suspect that we're going to come up with the positioning, we'll come up with a story that goes around that positioning. And then that's like, we're going to carve them into the stone tablets and we're never going to change them again. And so people get really, really nervous about that. Like, oh my gosh, it has to be perfect and it's never going to change. And in fact, that's not true at all. Particularly in technology companies, often what we have is we have the big ideal vision of where we expect to be in five years, in 10 years, maybe longer than that. And this vision is this all singing, all dancing product that we're going to have in the future. But then there's the thing that we have today. And that's, you know, I'm not saying it's crap, but, <laughs> you know, it, it ain't the vision. Let's put it that way. And so our positioning needs to shift as we mature moving along across time towards the vision. Often what we have are a set of predefined stages that we're actually planning on going through as the product matures and as we hit certain milestones. So I'll give you an example. I worked at a company and our initial positioning was all around being the world's greatest CRM for investment banks. Now, the vision was not that. The vision was to be the world's greatest CRM for any type of enterprise. But our strategy was we're going to be the greatest for investment banks and that would, once we had sold to a lot of investment banks, then we were going to start expanding out to retail banking. And then we would shift the positioning at that point. We wouldn't be CRM for investment banks. We would be CRM for banking. And then once we got that, we would be building some new stuff that would be very specific to insurance. And so eventually we would launch some insurance functionality. And at that point, we would shift the positioning and that would be CRM for financial services. And if we managed to capture all of that, well, now we're actually a great big company. And from there, we probably could just make the leap and say we're CRM for any big enterprise. So often we have this predetermined set of steps that we imagine that we're going to go through on the way from being where we are today to where we're being in the future. So we would expect the positioning to change. We do not expect it to say static across a large number of years. Now, that's not the only reason our positioning might change. 
So we'll have maybe planned changes in positioning, but a lot of times the positioning has to change for things that we simply did not plan for. Sometimes we come out with a feature that we think is going to be a little thing and it ends up being a big thing. And then we actually want to dial that up in our positioning. So that's not necessarily a plan change, but it's something that's just serendipity. And because of the market conditions or whatever's going on, we actually want to shift our positioning to take advantage of that. Sometimes we'll have things like a very common one is we make an acquisition. So we can't always plan for those acquisitions. We don't always know exactly when they're going to happen. But once the acquisition happens, in general, our positioning may shift. We're going to at least have to look at it and decide, does the positioning still make sense now that we have this extra capability underneath the umbrella of what the company can do? Positioning can change for other reasons too. Sometimes we have something that's highly differentiated from the other alternatives in the market. So we're positioning heavily around that. And then for whatever reason, our competitor catches up with us. And so what used to be differentiated value is now just value, but it's table stakes because everybody else can do it too. And so we may need to shift the positioning to take that into account. Beyond that, we may have competitors that launch something really unexpected, really new that we weren't anticipating. And maybe it gets a lot of buzz in the press, or maybe they're very noisy about it. We don't necessarily have to shift our positioning to react to that. However, if we see a change in customer behavior, meaning customers are starting to shortlist this competitor more, maybe we're starting to lose the occasional deal where we never lost to them before, that's a good reason to go back and have another look at the positioning and see if we need to make an adjustment to account for that. Sometimes what we have is a completely new competitor gets into the space. Often that's something we didn't predict. Sometimes what we've got is a competitor that kind of wasn't causing us any pain, but then they got acquired by somebody big. And so now previously customers weren't taking them seriously, but now they are taking them seriously because they're part of this bigger thing. We may need to go back and adjust the positioning for that. The last thing that catches us sometimes in our positioning that we have to adjust for is just macroeconomic things or things that are just outside of our control. So macroeconomically, there's things like we know that a makes money value proposition works better than a save money value proposition when the economy is good and the companies we are targeting are growing. That all gets kind of turned on its head if the economy is not so great or the companies that we're targeting are not actually in growth mode. They're more hunkered down and they're in cost-cutting mode. Suddenly, a save money value proposition looks a lot more appealing than a make money value proposition. So sometimes we have to account for that. The other thing that can happen that is often outside of our control is government regulation. So frequently what we'll see is a new government regulation comes along, companies start planning for that, and it changes their prioritization of things. So a little feature that used to be not such a big deal before suddenly becomes a big deal because the company actually needs that or else they're going to get a fine or they're going to go out of business or something bad is going to happen. And so new government regulation might be a reason for us to go back and take another look at the positioning and potentially make a change. So the first thing we have to kind of internalize is, you know, positioning is going to change and 
it's going to change for reasons that we have planned, but there are also all these unplanned reasons that might force us to change the positioning when we weren't planning to. So the first thing we got to think about is we actually need a way to regularly check in on our positioning to make sure that something isn't happening. When I was working in-house as a vice president of marketing, I would always have a positioning check-in. I used to do this twice a year. So we'd have a cross-functional team that's working on positioning. At about every six months, there would be a standing meeting. We would get the gang together and we'd do kind of a speed run on the positioning. So has anything changed in the competitive landscape? Is sales seeing different competitors pop up in deals or are we seeing competitors pop up in deals in a way that we didn't see them previously? Second thing is distinct capabilities. Have our competitors caught up with us? And so some things that we thought were differentiating are no longer differentiating. Have we released something new? And that's actually big enough that maybe we want to revisit the value that that drives. So we're going to do a speed run, look down that differentiated capabilities list. And ultimately what we're trying to figure out is, has our differentiated value changed? If it hasn't, we're good. We shouldn't touch the positioning. If we're not touching the positioning, we don't touch the sales pitch and we say, bye-bye, see you in six months. <laughs> if we don't do this every six months, or maybe you want to do it once a quarter meeting, then what happens is things start to shift slowly and we often don't see it until it's a big screaming emergency. So we'll get this thing where, you know, the numbers start looking funky, and then you go over and talk to sales and they say, oh yeah, we've been getting hammered by competitor XYZ for the last six months and nah, nobody thought to ask about it. So we didn't know. <laughs> and now we got an emergency on our hands and we got to shift some stuff. So if we're checking in regularly, that increases the chance that we're going to get an early warning on stuff that's changing in time for us to do something about it before it becomes a big problem. So some people will ask me, well, how often, like, just give me a guess, like how often would you think your positioning needs to change? And my answer to that is nobody knows, like, we don't know. We might have some stuff planned in and you know, the world serves you up some surprises sometimes and you don't really know how this stuff is going to go. So for example, I worked at this company, they don't exist anymore. They're called InfoBright. We were a column oriented data store and we had this neat positioning where we were, uh, data warehouse for machine generated data. It was pretty good positioning. It worked pretty well. We had a really tight relationship with MySQL. And so a lot of our positioning had to do with our relationship there and how nicely we played with MySQL. And if you were into MySQL, you'd be into our stuff. But then what happened was MySQL got acquired by Sun. And so that was a bit of a bummer. And that was, you know, we had only had the positioning for a few months. So we had to kind of huddle back together and go, okay, well, does this impact our positioning? And it did a little bit. So we made an adjustment, but then fast forward a few months, we had a really good relationship with the folks at Sun. So that was going good and everyone's happy. Positioning's working pretty good. And then I don't know how many months later it was, but then Sun got acquired by Oracle. And that was very not good. Like at the time, <laughs> Oracle made all these noises about how maybe we're going to kill MySQL. I don't know what we're doing with MySQL. There was all sorts of talk about we were going to have a fork in the code base. It was terrible, trust me. And we had to go back to the drawing board again. So that was three times in the space of maybe a year and a half where we had to adjust the positioning and we couldn't have predicted any of that. You know, the flip side to that is the very first product I ever worked on, which was more than 20 years ago, this uh, embeddable database for mobile devices, uh, which, you know, got acquired and then got acquired again and then got acquired again. And I think is now part of SAP, uh, 
a couple of years ago, I went and looked up at the landing page for that product and the positioning wasn't all that different from the positioning that I had worked on, which was 20 some odd years ago. So who knows? We can't predict these things. I think the best way is to make sure that we have a regular check-in on it so that if something is happening, we at least have an early warning that we can have a look at it and know that there's something going on that we should reposition in response to. So the big question is, okay, so let's say we got to change our positioning. How do we do it in a way that makes it stick? I think there's a whole bunch of things that we got to think about. So the first one is, um, in my experience, if we are a smaller company, and when I say small, I mean privately held, like maybe we're 100 million revenue or below that or way below that. But if it's a smallish company, the CEO really needs to drive this effort. If the CEO is not driving the effort, it's not going to stick. And that's just the nature of how these things go. If marketing tries to do it on their own, for sure it isn't going to stick. If marketing and sales get together and try to do it, that's a little bit better, but you're still going to have this problem that if the CEO doesn't buy into the new positioning, it isn't going to stick because they're going to tell a different story when they're out in the world. So we really need the CEO to buy into it if we're going to try and do a change in positioning at all. If we can't get the CEO to buy into it, well, maybe the positioning doesn't actually need to get changed or we're going to have to do something to convince that person that they need to come in and buy into this thing to change it. There's no point in working on it if the CEO doesn't buy in. Now, if you're a giant company like Google or IBM or something, it's not the CEO, it's maybe the whoever runs your division, but the person who is ultimately responsible for revenue for that product needs to be bought into this thing because otherwise it just won't stick. We can do it, but it will end up creeping back to the original state. Second thing, and I say this all the time, I sound like a broken record, but it needs to be a team effort. So not just the CEO, we need product marketing and sales, ideally customer service. Sometimes we want development in there. We need a cross-functional team working on this thing. If we don't have a cross-functional team working on it, then the parts of the team that are not included in the work are not going to buy into it. If they don't buy into it, then they're not going to execute on it. And again, it doesn't stick particularly when we're doing a big shift like this, we really need to have everyone at the table. Everybody needs to get their disagreements out. Everybody needs to bring their smart ideas about how customers behave to the table. We are not only going to get a better result, but we're going to get a result that everybody is in agreement and alignment with, and it's much more likely that the thing is going to stick when we're done. Next thing is we can't just work on the positioning. We have to take it all the way through to the sales pitch. It's one thing we work on the positioning. If we stop at the end of that, marketing's going to be happy because they know what the differentiated value props are. They can go and run messaging around that. Product might be okay because you know they'll know how to tell the story. And usually they're good at doing that even with just the positioning. Sales, on the other hand, if there isn't a sales pitch that reflects this positioning, I can guarantee you it will not stick over in sales. Sales will slide back into whatever the sales pitch is that they're using right now because they're comfortable with that. So if we're going to do a big change in positioning, we got to take it all the way through to the story that the salespeople are using when they're talking to customers. If we want it to stick over in sales, which in my opinion is very, very important, we need to be careful how we test the sales pitch. So most of the time what I see is marketing will develop a new pitch. Maybe there's a little input from sales management. Maybe there isn't. And then what they'll do is they'll just send it over to the sales team and say, this is the new pitch. You have to use this now. 
And then they're all bummed out <laughs> because the sales team goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they use it once or twice. And then they come back and they say, you know what? It doesn't work. I tried it. You know, I'm not in love with the old pitch, but I'm comfortable with the old pitch. And then they just backslide into the old pitch. I hear this over and over and over again. It's probably the most common complaint I get from marketers about sales. We send them stuff, the salespeople don't use it. So I think we need to be very deliberate about how new sales materials make the jump over to sales. In my experience, it works much better to have sales training sales than marketing attempting to train sales. So if we wanna make a new sales pitch stick, usually what I would recommend is we pull the best salesperson you got. We train that person on the new sales pitch and then we work with that person as they're doing pitches with qualified prospects to tune it and make sure that it works well. And we keep doing that until your best salesperson looks at you and says, you know what? I think we're done tuning this. And guess what? I like it better than the old pitch. If you can get your best salesperson to that place, even though there's an overwhelming bias for the old pitch, now you know you got something. Then I can take that salesperson, have that salesperson train the rest of the sales team. I can record that salesperson doing the pitch and doing it very well. I can have that salesperson come to the rest of the sales team and say, look, this works. Trust me. See all these deals in the pipeline. I got these deals into the pipeline using that new pitch. That works a thousand times better than having marketing just lob it over the wall and say, hey, salespeople, good luck, Chuck. The other thing I wanted to talk about in this is that I think acquisitions are a very special case around a change in positioning. It, it involves a lot more change management than just a little shift in positioning, particularly a planned shift in positioning that we knew was coming about our own product. Acquisitions are rough, man. I've been through a bunch of them. I've actually been through six, seven, six acquisitions in my career, mainly on the side where we, you know, I was with the startup and we got acquired. But when I was at IBM, I went through a bunch of acquisitions where I was on the buyer side, which was very interesting because all the things that we thought buyers cared about and did, uh, it turned out they didn't at all. It was so eye-opening to me. But I have some opinions about positioning and how we need to survive a change in positioning that happens after an acquisition. So let's talk about a few things here. The newly acquired team is going to have a really hard time absorbing the existing positioning of the mothership. And one of the reasons why that happens is often that team used to compete with the mothership. <laughs> so they've been out in the market saying, yeah, those guys are big and dumb and slow and all the rest of it. And, you know, they've got their own story. They've been selling against you and now they are you. And so they come in and this is a hard shift to make. I'll give you an example of this. I worked for a company called Janus Systems and we got acquired by Siebel. And Siebel was the big, big market leader and uh, and we were just little we and we used to we used to say lots of bad things about them before they acquired us so you know we used to say they were really arrogant they weren't very nice to their customers there was no one innovation they moved very slowly i mean we had a whole set of talking points about 
why Siebel was not a good company to partner with. And then we got acquired. So it was hard for us to turn that off. And one of the things that I appreciated was a couple of folks on the Siebel side, I think, spent some time with us to help us understand where we were maybe a little misguided in some of the things we were saying. So it turned out there was a reasonable amount of innovation going on there. It turns out, you know, they maybe were better at servicing customers than we gave them credit for. So if you're in a situation where you're doing an acquisition like this, on the acquiring side, I think you're going to have to spend some time teaching the newly acquired team about your value propositions. And you're going to have to come with some receipts because they're maybe not going to believe everything you say, because maybe there's a perception out in the market that that is not true. And they maybe leaned into that perception when they were out in the market competing with you. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Sales enablement. Like I, I can't talk about this enough. It's, it's so critical. So sales enablement on both sides is going to be really, really important. So we have salespeople at the mothership. We have salespeople at the little company that's just been acquired. These sales teams don't know anything about the value proposition of the other. So typically what happens is there's like a period where maybe you're still selling the thing from the little company and you have their own salespeople selling that, which is fine. And that might be a good way to do it. But customers are going to ask them, like, how does this fit into the bigger company story? And how does it integrate with the bigger company solution? And, you know, tell me the story about you folks all being together. So you're going to have to arm that sales team with that. And they're not just going to be able to figure that out. Like I said, maybe they were previously competing with you. And so they're going to need a sales pitch that really speaks to that. Same thing goes for the other side. The sales team at the mothership if they're now getting compensated and expected to sell the stuff from the newly acquired company, they're going to have to understand where and when that comes in. Often you've got a situation where there's like little features of the mothership product that are actually in competition with the newly acquired thing. So everybody's going to have to be very clear what does an opportunity for the new thing look like? What is the checklist of things that a salesperson should tick off and say, oh, if it checks these three boxes, we should actually be proposing this thing. So this needs to be very, very deliberate when you bring these things in together. We can't just expect that both sides are just going to figure out the positioning of the other side by osmosis. Never happens. The other thing is as much as we can, like it's, it's not just sales enablement, like they're probably going to need support technically. Like when we're talking about sales, they're going to need sales engineering support because, you know, both sides don't really understand the other side's technology. And so particularly if we're selling something techie to a techie audience, we're going to make sure that we're giving them a lot of technical support because otherwise, you know, we run the risk of our salespeople on either side losing credibility because they're saying things that are maybe not entirely true or misrepresenting the truth. Here's another thing. If you are part of the smaller team that's been acquired, your positioning is going to change a lot more usually than the mothership positioning, especially if you've been really absorbed into their product set. Sometimes what you'll have is you know, you've got a whole team that has been working on this thing and, and, and this thing has been everything. And then it gets acquired. And in the context of the new company, it's just like 
a feature. <laughs> it's like a little wee thing compared to the old thing. And so what you can get is the team that just came in through the acquisition starts feeling like, well, none of our stuff's important. Like, what's the point? And so again, people need to understand how this piece part fits into the bigger piece part and why it's important that it does. So again, this needs a deliberate effort. In my experience, getting the team together from both sides, mothership side and the team that's just been acquired, getting them together to do a team positioning exercise can be a really amazing way to solve a lot of these problems. So what we end up doing, first of all, is this great information sharing. So the folks on the mothership get to kind of educate in real time the folks from the little company, here's what our value propositions are. This is what works in a sales meeting. This is how we win. This is really what the value is. And then the folks coming from the acquired team can help educate the mothership folks on, this is what we're really good at. This is the technology underneath it that makes this true. This is what customers really love and what customers don't care about so much. So that if we're all working on this thing together, everybody gets to share their information. Everybody gets a bit educated about what's happening on both sides. And it's a good way to really come to a common understanding of what does the joint positioning look like post-acquisition. Here's the last one that I think is really funny. You know, and having been through a lot of acquisitions on both sides, I always thought that the other side would know more about us than they did. And I was always wrong. So when I was at IBM, you know, and we acquired a little company, I would just assume that they knew a lot about IBM. And it turned out they would come in and they would know absolutely nothing about IBM, like not even the most basic things about IBM. We'd have to educate them on a lot of stuff. The same thing the other way, which was really surprising. Like, you know, when I was with Jana, we got acquired by Siebel. Like we just assumed that Siebel knew a lot about us because, you know, they spent more than a billion dollars buying us. So you don't even think that people spent a lot of time looking at us. And, you know, I'm sure there were some people, we just never met those people or something. So we showed up and there was a surprising lack of understanding at any level of the company when we worked with them about what we were really all about. And so, I think we have to acknowledge that at the beginning and then make sure that both sides make a big effort so that we can educate each other. Again, I think a joint positioning exercise is a really good excuse to get these two teams together, get both sides educated, get positioning that works on both sides. And then not only that, we take that positioning, we translate it into a sales story. Now everybody knows how to tell the story in addition to all of that. So I actually think doing some stuff post-acquisition around positioning kills a lot of birds with one stone is a really, really super valuable thing to do. Anyways, that's it. That's all I got for today. Few things. One, as usual, I would love it if you reviewed this podcast because it's pretty new. Still, it feels new to me. Secondly, new book is out. You should check it out. It's called Sales Pitch and it's a eight step 
process for building a sales pitch that totally rocks and reflects your positioning, you could buy that on Amazon. Hey, if you have bought it already, I would love it if you gave me a review. Reviews are like everything. Like if you know anybody who's written a book, reviews are a really big deal on Amazon, particularly in the early days, because it helps people understand what is this book all about. So I would appreciate it if you did that. The last thing is that I have shiny brand new set of templates that go with the books. So I decided to put all the templates together. I have a bunch of templates that went with the original book, which was obviously awesome. I got some new templates that are going with sales pitch. And since the two things are kind of connected, I put it together in a workbook. So if you want to get your hands on that, you can go on my website, aprildunford.com slash books. You sign up for my newsletter and you will get the code to get the workbook for free. And yeah, you should do that. Thanks again for joining me. I will see you next time.